Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. Mark Malloy here with Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, We are very happy to have uh, one of our contributors come on this evening to talk about a new book of his that is coming out this summer. Um, we have Eric Sterner, uh, who you've probably read a lot of. He does a lot of great blog posts for Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, has also done things with uh, Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, recently spoke uh, last year at our uh, symposium um, and uh, all around great historian and focusing on uh, parts of the American Revolution that are often overlooked. Uh, you know, we had uh, a few weeks ago uh mike cesare on to talk about colonial williamsburg and talk about how how you know southern campaign and virginia and williamsburg and some of that stuff is often overlooked but i think uh eric has a topic that's even more overlooked than that uh and that is uh the the war that was going on in the in the west during the revolutionary war um and uh you know a lot of the fighting with the native americans out there uh, he had a great book uh, that recently came out, The Anatomy of a Massacre, um, and, uh, and this book is going to follow up on, on some of that. And so, uh, welcome, Eric. Uh, and uh, yeah, why don't you tell us uh, the name of this book that's uh, coming out and kind of the, uh, 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 what it covers, uh, this book. Okay. Uh, it's The Battle of Upper Sandusky, 1782, right there. I, I realize it's a mirror image. I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's it's part of the West Holmes Small Battles series. They look at uh, uh, small battles, uh, which uh, is a lot is the way a lot of people experience the war. They they didn't participate in Yorktown or Saratoga or any of the great campaigns around Philadelphia. So uh, these these smaller smaller engagements. Um, it's a battle that took place in of all places Western Ohio, um, not too far from Toledo. Uh, so, you know, you don't, you don't think about Toledo and about, about 90 miles away as, as being part of the American Revolution. Sure enough, there was a battle there and it had ended with uh, basically the execution of the man you see there over Mark's right shoulder, <laughs> Colonel William Crawford. So the story is, is follows the campaign. It's a military history. It's not like the last one. We're looking at almost entirely the campaign from its inception uh, over there in uh, Western Pennsylvania through, I hate to say this, it's execution, the execution, and then the fallout uh, back in Pennsylvania and among the Native American nations that lived in Ohio. Um, that's that's kind of, yeah, it should be out if all goes well in June. Uh, we're just wrapping up maps this morning. Yeah, no. Um, and you mentioned, yeah, the execution. I, you know, um, having read a lot about the Revolutionary War, this theater of action is often overlooked. Uh, and, um, you know, you mentioned 1782. So a lot of people think of Yorktown 
1781 as the climactic final battle of the revolution. Um, of course, we know uh, other actions are happening, including this campaign. Um, and you mentioned the execution of Crawford. Uh, and that was really my first introduction to all of this is looking through Virginia, you know, uh, officers in the revolution. I came across some footnote or some story about O. Crawford, who was killed in an expedition uh, out in the Western Revolutionary War and uh, hadn't heard of it before, but that was mm-hmm. kind of the introduction to it was uh, this Virginia officer gets uh gets killed by Native Americans during the, um, during the war. So, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think that's, you know, often the, the, the one connection, uh, that people might have to this campaign is Crawford. Um, yeah, he's, he's probably the most popular search term that gets you to, to this in part because his execution was, uh, uh, written about by, uh, a man, Dr. Jonathan Knight, who went with the campaign. And he was slated to be executed a few days later by a different Indian nation, but he witnessed the whole thing mm. uh, and then managed to escape on his route to being executed by the Shawnee in the South. Oh. Uh, Crawford was, was executed by the Delaware, um, but not too far from the town of Upper Sandusky, uh, both the village, the, the Indian uh, town and now the current town of Upper Sandusky. Um, so Knight was probably going to be executed somewhere down in the sky or uh, south of Columbus or, southwest, or southwest of Columbus. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so you mentioned a few uh, Indian tribes there, the Delaware, the Shawnee. Uh, I feel like most of my understanding of, you know, warfare with Native Americans, usually uh, one thing that pops up is like, you know, I think of the Sullivan expedition um, where mm-hmm. you know, there. Can you get us up to 1780? So what was kind of the warfare going on um, between the Native American tribes and the the Americans, uh, you know, in the first part of the war? And what effect did that have on what would eventually become this expedition? Well, Ohio spends the, it was called the Ohio country, everywhere north of the Ohio River, basically. and east of the Wabash, so in modern states of Indiana and Ohio. And uh, for the first part of the war, it hadn't been that bad because the Ohio tribes, uh, in this case, the Wyandotte, the Shawnee, uh, the Wyandotte and the Delaware really wanted to be neutral. Uh, the Shawnee were still getting over uh, Dunmore's war and they were a little bit more eager uh, to fight, and, but they focused a lot of their efforts on Kentucky. And so the first few years, Ohio wasn't that bad. You still had it as sort of a no man's land. Native American nations that sided with the British, uh, particularly from the upper Great Lakes, would come through Ohio, raid Western Pennsylvania, raid uh, Western Virginia, and the Continentals were powerless to stop them. So you get this tradition of of self-help where locals who lived on the frontier would have to organize themselves for self-defense. And that's one of the themes of the book is that this, I called it war from the bottom up. The continental authorities in Philadelphia or wherever the Congress happened to be at the moment, uh, even the Western Department commander in Pittsburgh just couldn't control events. Uh, they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the people. Um, and it, was, it really came down to militia organizations and sort of these ad hoc self-organized groups uh, to patrol the frontier, to pursue raiding parties, try to recover. Uh, prisoners, um, and when they could, uh, attack the Native Americans, which was actually very rare. Uh, the militia, it's obvious if you, if you leave home, your family's defenseless. They didn't want to, they didn't really want to do that. But as the war progressed, it intensified. Uh, of course, after 1777, we get uh, Henry Hamilton and the uh, really intensifying things, turning up the tribes. He's, he's been told by George III, uh, go for it. We're going to organize these guys. We're going to make a distraction on the western frontier of Pennsylvania and Virginia. Um, so the war intensifies. It gets really bad. And in some ways, that that part of the war culminates, I, I argued, in, in the Nadanut Massacre in March 1782, where you had a, about 150 volunteers just ride into a, a what was a relatively peaceful town, a bunch of neutrals. Uh, who happened to be at some towns on the Muskingum and, and rounded all the Native Americans there up and beat them to death. 
Um, and in the first book, I went into all the reasoning and how you get there. The second book picks up where the first one stopped. Uh, as these raiders are coming back toward Pittsburgh and, and Washington County uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania, they say, that was great. This just tells you about the mindset going on at the time. Let's do it again, but let's go to Sandusky, where most of these warring nations really live. The Wyandotte, the more militant Delaware, uh, who by this point have sided with uh, the British. And so this idea sort of grows among the people uh, living in Western Pennsylvania. And they come to the Western Department commander, who's Brigadier General William Irvine at this point, and say, we think we should lead a campaign. We think you should lead a campaign against the Sandusky uh, nations. Uh, so those, those two major groupings living along Sandusky. Irvine doesn't have any resources for it. Uh, the, 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 the people aren't quite a militia campaign yet. Uh, because the militia has to be called up through a formal system before they can engage in an operation and they don't, they aren't going to do it. Uh, they basically are going to act like privateers. They're going to go out and attack these towns, destroy, defeat, do everything they can do, and then take the booty back home. Uh, so this was part of their plan. Irvine doesn't like this idea so much. Uh, because he's afraid things are going to get out of hand the way they had gotten out of hand at Netton Hutton. Um, and through a little bit of po politicking, uh, he comes to the realization that he can't stop these guys from going west. They're going to go. Um, and he decides that, okay, what influence do I have? I'm going to use that influence and I'm going to try to prevent a repeat of the massacre. And I'm going to try to make this more effective. So he uses some political horse trading to swing this command to William Crawford. Uh, because it's an ad hoc campaign, they're gonna vote and pick their own officers. Uh, so they aren't forming, they aren't following the existing militia chain of command. Um, and Crawford wins, I think there's 465 votes cast. He wins by five. His nearest competitor is David Williamson, who had unfortunately either led or at a minimal at, at a minimum, been the ranking officer uh, from the militia at the Nadamad massacre. Uh, but Williamson says, all right, that's okay, Crawford will be fine. Crawford's been on the frontier for a long time at this point. He's a former business partner of George Washington. Uh, he commanded troops at Germantown, Brandywine. Uh, they hadn't done particularly well, but he'd been there. So and he'd also uh, led troops in Dunmore's War. Uh, and so he's probably the most experienced uh, officer on the frontier who's available at this point. He's 60 years old, he's a little bit long in the tooth for it. Um, he's not very enthusiastic, but uh, Irvine sort of buttonholes him and says, I really need you to do this. Crawford says, okay, and his whole family, just, or most of his family, most men in his family decided to go with him. Um, so they set out in... Uh, uh, around May 25th, they hold the vote. Uh, they set out from uh, uh, was it the Mingo Bottom here on the Ohio River, and they're going to march across Ohio uh, and attack the Indians in Sandusky. They want it to be a surprise, so they take this roundabout zigzag ways, trying to stay off the main things that pass for roads. Uh, but of course, things take longer when you take a roundabout route. And the Indians know they're coming. Uh, in fact, the Indians knew they were coming before they voted on Crawford uh, yeah. in early April. Um, uh, Simon Gertie, who's an Indian uh, agent, uh, and his boss, Alexander McKee, tell the British commandant of Detroit, the Americans are going to come at Sandusky. And then uh, Henry Powell, who's a brigadier at Niagara, finds out before the British commandant of Detroit tells him and he says, okay, we're due for rotation. I'm gonna send you reinforcements. And so the Peister who's the com commandant at Detroit is, is gonna receive reinforcements before he's even made a decision. So the British are actually reinforcing the Indians on Sandusky before the Americans have even organized themselves to begin their march across Ohio. Yeah, wow. Now, did they, um, uh, did they know this because of, uh, were there spies or somebody on the inside? Uh, how how they 
learn of this plan that the uh the, well, the, the word it's, it's hard it's tough to tell most likely uh it came from prisoners taken in raids uh by the indians which this is all going on in 1782 that as, as like you pointed out that you know the yorktown sort of closes the war in a lot of people's minds uh but if anything the war on the frontier got worse it arguably it was more intense in 1782 than it had been in 1781 uh, or even 1780. Um, and part of that is because the, the, I think the Western nations decided, the Ohio nations in particular decided it's now or never before the British go home. Mm-hmm. Um, so we better make our best case, make our, get our best position in place before we have to deal with those uh, those folks across the Appalachians on our own. Um, were um, and you mentioned you know were these all on the uh, American side? Was it all militia? Were there any Continentals, or was this uh, just a militia expedition? Officially, it wasn't militia. Um, the militia officers in uh, Western Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, Western Virginia refused to call up the militia, which is ironic because they were going to go ahead and supply these volunteers with supplies from stores set aside for the militia and count their service against their militia obligations. So what there's a great bit of, and I get into it a little bit in the book, there's a little bit of political maneuvering between the, the civilian and militia leaders in Western Pennsylvania and Irvine as a continental. They want to support. He's he doesn't really have anything to give to them. He's worried they'll get themselves in trouble. But he's also realizing he can't stop them, and they're kind of blackmailing him into giving him their you know his his official imprimatur, his official approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got a little bit of leverage, not much. There are no continental officers uh, that go with two exceptions. Uh, one is a guy named Lieutenant John Rose. Uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the the folks living on the frontier referred to him as a major. Um, but in his correspondence with Washington, uh, Irvine is real clear that Rose is a lieutenant. So I think that's the commission he held. Uh, John Rose is, is ironically, he's, 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 he he's been an, he's been a, an adjutant to Irvine for a long time. They're close. Rose Rose is actually a Baron. He's a Baron Gustavus de Rosenthal. He's a Livonian nobility or, or aristocracy in the Russian Empire. Um, but he killed a guy in a duel in Saint Petersburg. He had to flee the country before he had to account for it. Um, fled to the British. Became a British naval surgeon. He was terrible at it. Uh, Irvine, who had been a British naval surgeon, recognized that Rose was no naval surgeon <laughs> and ended putting Irvine or putting Rose on his staff uh, when he made it to the to the colonies, to the rebelling American colonies. Uh, so Rose, who is one of our primary sources for the whole campaign, um, uh, is basically speaking, uh, writing in English and conversing with everybody in English but he probably spoke French better than English and Russian better than he spoke English. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how uh, his original text, wherever it exists, probably somewhere in, in a Russian archive uh, is. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's officer number one. The second one is Jonathan Knight. Don, Jonathan Knight's a surgeon for, oh, the 7th Virginia, I think. Uh, which is one of the two regiments that nominally has a, uh, has a posting at, at, at uh, Fort Pitt. Um, so those are the only two things. Uh, the only two officers that uh, Irvine can send roses to explicitly act as an adjunct to the, or an adjutant to the commanding officer. Uh, and Knight is just a surgeon because the volunteers really don't have any. So Knight is their guy. Um, so that, that's kind of how you line it up as the Americans set out, there's about 488 of them. Uh, remember it takes these guys weeks to get from place to place. Uh, the roads are so bad. So, um, they're arriving there at their own expense, uh, mango bottom before they set out. And, um, on the other side of Ohio, the Indians know they were coming. There are, 
more or less three tribes on the Sandusky. The, the Wyandotte, which I've mentioned, their leader is a man named Dunquat, who is, is often shows up in the American histories as White Eyes, or not White Eyes, uh, Half King. Uh, there's a second man named Hopakan, who is known as Captain Pipe. He's of the Delaware. Uh, he's got a fellow war uh, uh, captain named Wingenund, who we don't hear too much about. And then there's uh, the Mingo. And the Mingo are sort of this offshoot of the Seneca uh, and other Six Nations tribes that have sort of migrated down the Ohio River and into Ohio. Um, you mentioned uh, correspondence with Washington. Uh, how much of this is going on with either Washington or the Continental Congress's knowledge and did they have any say or was there any um, trepidation about this uh, campaign or? Um... I don't think Congress knew about it. Uh, some of them may have known Dorsey Pentecost was an advocate. He was on the Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Executive Council. Then I'm sure the Pennsylvania Supreme Executive Council, which is in Philadelphia, is communicating with the Continental Congress. Okay, uh, Irvine is telling Washington what's going on, and, and he refers to it as the country people are all up in arms and want to launch a campaign. Um, but uh, in, in the in the in the extensive correspondence between Irvine and, and Washington, you know, it's it's not the number one subject. He's got other issues that he's got to deal with um, in Pennsylvania that he thinks are that are more important. Uh, so that's part of the reason I think the campaign gets overlooked. It's not a continental affair. They don't have a, a, a stake in the outcome or a stake in the. They don't have a dog in the fight as it as it, as it goes. So this is almost entirely the local taking matters into their own hands and deciding they're going to go attack the Sandusky Indians because that's where the source of all their suffering is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a theme that you find uh, throughout a lot of these frontier histories, uh, Sandusky and then the Lake Indians. This is where their problems are coming from. That's where they're gonna go attack there instead of sitting there waiting in their cabins for raiding parties. They're gonna take the initiative rather than being on the, on the defensive. So that's sort of the, the logic behind it. Um, Good. So, uh, so they they set off. Uh, when do they set off, and how long is it going to take them to get to Sandusky? They leave on uh, May twenty fifth to take this roundabout route. Um, at a couple points, it looks like they might kind of be lost. The scouts, uh, uh, three men uh, who are getting paid the extraordinary sound of sum of seven pounds, so hard currency each. Um, haven't been to Upper Sandusky in a, since before the war. It's hostile territory. So they have an idea where it is. Uh, the towns move around though. Uh, so Sandusky is a concept, not necessarily a place at this point. It is a place, but it's always moving. So we're not quite sure where we're going. Um, they get in the neighborhood about June 3rd. Um, and uh, at a couple points, they know they're being tracked. They're actually passing Indians. They're detecting signs. They actually took a shot at some Indians uh, back on the Muskingum uh, within two, three days after leaving uh, the Ohio River. So they know they're being tracked. Uh, I hate to say it. Smoke signals has a terrible connotation these days, but Indians are setting fires to mark the expeditions path and progress. Um, so people know, the Indians know where they're coming and they're actually telling a, a trader in town in Sandusky, upper Sandusky, we know where they are and we know when they're gonna get here. They get in the neighborhood around June 3rd, uh, they come across a couple of abandoned towns, they don't know what to do. Men wanna go home, they've been on the road for a long time, they're running low on food, uh, you know, it's not all, it's not been a good time for anybody. Um, that rah-rah spirit they had when they got this idea has kind of left them from some long days in the saddle. Uh, they get to June 4th, and the night of June 3rd, June 3rd, June 4th, it's really foggy and cloudy. And after midnight on June 3rd, they hear some cannon fire. Now, this is, this is a mysterious thing because there were no cannon in the area. 
So it may be an acoustical trick, um, but it's reported by several people. Um, so, you know, historians have been trying to figure out where this cannon fire came from and if it's a real or, or a figment of the imagination, but several people reported it and they're very distinctive and specific in their reporting. So June 4th wakes up and the Americans, you know, they're wet from the fog. Uh, it's been a pretty heavy mist all night. They fire off their weapons to clear, clear, clear the loads out of their, their, uh, their, their firearms. Uh, they saddle up and they ride all morning. They get to Upper Sandusky and it's, there's nothing there. It's abandoned. And this is the place where they think Upper Sandusky was supposed to be. And so through a good chunk of the morning and early afternoon of June 4th, you've got the column here, this group starting and stopping as they move down the Sandusky River. So they're moving in a northerly direction, trying to figure out, well, where's this town? And you've got, got uh, uh, more aggressive folks like Williamson saying, you know, it's just two more miles, just two more miles, just two more miles. Crawford's circulating among the men. He thinks about half of them want to go home. Crawford, who never really wanted to be there, was like, no, nah, just, you know, but I don't want to be the guy who turns around if it's just two more miles. So he keeps conceding. And they're at this place. They finally stop in an abandoned town. And they're going to have this big council among the officers um, and uh, Crawford pulls Williamson or pulls uh, Lieutenant Rose aside. And he says, look, take, take 20 or 40 men, ride North, go a couple more miles, see what you see, and then come back. Rose rides off to see what he can see. Uh, lo and behold, he spots inhabited roofs and there's smoke curling out. And as he's approaching them, uh, there's an ambush. Western Ohio is, is prairie. It's all, at this point, it's grassland, and the grass is three, four feet high. So if you're up on a horse, you can see reasonably well. It's a very gentle rolling country, so you can't necessarily see over the next hill if it's very big, but the hills are so small. They're just high enough that you can't see a lot. The grass is high enough you can't see a lot, but it looks like you can see forever. It's just like the prairies. Um, so he gets ambushed in a ravine and about the same time that that happens, he sees, uh, Native Americans moving off to his right, uh, and even behind him to cut him off from the road he'd ridden up to, um, begin his scout. So he beats a retreat back to a place. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an elevated place in the, in the plain. Uh, it's, it's covered in trees which is sets it apart and it becomes known as Battle Island. Um, so he put, he's fighting this fighting which retreat the whole way, he's slowing the Indians a little bit, trying to maneuver and look like there's more of him than they're not. And he sent, then there are, and he sends a messenger back to Crawford. The messenger gets there real quick, um, tells them that, you know, Rose has essentially made contact with the Indians. We found the town and, and he's being shot at. So to his credit, Crawford reacts very quickly, saddles up the troops, and he rides north. Rose makes it to Battle Island uh, in the afternoon of the 4th. Uh, he's extremely nervous because he's dramatically outnumbered and he knows it. Uh, all depends on Crawford riding up and Crawford and his men ride up. Um, they're actually crash into some Indians who have reached some trees behind Rose. Uh, and they clear them out and gets his men up onto Battle Hill and then sets his, his defensive positions up uh, pretty much, I think, following a march order in a defensive order that they had take, that he'd set up that Rose had recorded. Um, so that's where I placed units on the battlefield. It's one way that, that uh, I think this book's going to be a little different. When the battle gets uh, treated in other histories, uh, it's very episodic, so we have very little firsthand information. Um, so you have little episodic stories, um, but you don't necessarily know where on the battlefield they're taking place. And I went through the roles and, and these positions or these formations that they'd taken up earlier and tried to place those stories on the battlefield so we could follow the battle a little bit that way as a military history and instead of just an event after your town. Mm -hmm. So that gets us through the fourth, okay. uh, and 
uh, it's the hottest day. Uh, it's about four o'clock when things are really intense. Um, and basically, you got the Americans on Battle Island, the Native Americans have got a partial encirclement of them off in trees, slightly off in the distance, and they're uh, relatively intense fighting over the grasslands for a good part of the evening. And then by around 6.30, 7 o'clock, things start to settle down. Um, and they're gonna, everybody's going to lick their, their, lick their wounds and, and get ready for the next day. Are, the, uh, are there any British uh, involved at this point? There are. Uh, mentioned Henry Powell at Niagara, uh, sending reinforcements before the Americans even left the Ohio River. Um, there's a unit called Butler's Rangers, uh, which is a ranger unit of loyalists. Uh, they generally operate operate out of Niagara and Detroit. Uh, they operate as detached companies. Um, you may be more familiar with them from a lot of the, uh, the battles in North, northeastern Pennsylvania, the Wyoming Valley raids and such, um, and then some of the some of the fighting that went on in, in uh, New York. They're more accustomed to working with the Six Nations, um, but there's always a company at least stationed at Detroit. Powell, they're due for a rotation at Detroit. Powell dispatches another company, and by the time uh, they arrive, uh, they they tell the, the company there we're not rotating. We're all going down to Sandusky which they've already decided to do. And so there's about 80 Rangers um, on the field under the command of Captain William Caldwell. Uh, he's actually shot uh, in the opening minutes of the engagement and command falls to Lieutenant uh, John Turney, who had arrived from Fort Niagara. Both of them are, are, long, are quote, long service members with Butler's Rangers, which had just gotten started during the war. And both were familiar with both uh, the, the Native Americans uh, in the Ohio, in the Ohio uh, territory, or Ohio country, and Detroit and each other. Uh, they didn't like each other, near as I could tell, but that's more of a feeling you get from reading some of the reports and letters. Mm -hmm. uh, they brought about 40 Lake Indians with them, so there's probably about 120 of them total as reinforcements. Okay, so night of the fourth now, they're both licking their wings. What happens after that? It's a big night on the fourth because at this point, Crawford has achieved all the goals set for him by Irvine. Okay. Get there and fight the Indians. We didn't want another one of these things where we go raid empty villages. The problem he's got is the Indians can be reinforced. He, on the other hand, is not going to be reinforced, and he's only got the supplies he brought with him, and the men had already complained they were running out, and they've just fired off a lot of their ammunition. So the night of June 4th, June 5th, is a big decision time uh, in terms of, well, what are we going to do? And they don't make a decision. They don't seem to make an affirmative decision to act. They said, well, we're going to see what happens. So they end up fighting on the 5th. Uh, and this is a, a place where things really go south for them. Nothing much happens on the 5th. Um, they, they, they hold their positions. There's a lot of long-range firing, uh, some mild, uh, probably a few people get wounded. Um, uh, there's rumors of a meeting between Simon Gertie, uh, representing the British. Um, he's the Benedict Arnold of the frontier. Um, and either Williamson and or Crawford. There's at least four versions of what may or may not have taken place between these two, whether they met, whether they didn't meet, whether they tried to meet, whether they knew they were meeting with each other and so on. So uh, I go through those in the book as to what may have happened, uh, and what all the stories are and why, which ones are credible. Um, here's where the Americans aren't in the trouble. The Shawnee finally arrive in the afternoon of June 5th and the Americans see them arrive. And there's been a hole in the Indian lines, a way for the Americans to get out of this partial encirclement. When the Shawnee roll up, they fill, they fill the hole. So now the Americans are more or less encircled uh, because the numbers are more or less evenly matched. Uh, with the Shawnee arrival, the Indians probably outnumber the Americans. The Americans at this point are probably around 450 because they've had some desertions. Indians are probably around 500 
on their side. Uh, so there's plenty of gaps among different Indian factions or different Indian nations um, that the Americans might try to escape through. And with the Indians arrival or ammunition gone, the Americans say, this isn't, this isn't working for us, we're gonna retreat um, and do our best to get back to the Ohio River. Um, and unfortunately, when they saddle up that night, on uh, the night of the 5th, one captain takes it into his head that he doesn't agree with the way leadership's gonna go, uh, the route they intend to take, he bolts off on his own. Crawford decides to go find them. This is a job for a staff officer, but Crawford decides to do it himself. The Indians detect this company riding off. They start firing on Battle Island again, and that signals a general panic among the Americans who are trying to sneak away in the night. Everybody just rides. They just, it's a route. Um, so they end up riding in large and small groups. The largest group goes to the south and uh, is running the gauntlet between the Shawnee and the Delaware. A lot of them get shot up. Probably not too bad, but for the time, bad enough. Another group rides off to the west of all directions. Uh, there's a, a smaller group heads in the same direction. They all eventually meet back at the old uh, abandoned town uh, they'd first encountered and then make their way to the east. And on June 6th, you have a skirmish called the Battle of Olentangy. Olentangy's a river, um, kind of a small river. It ends by a, with a thunderstorm. With the thunderstorm, uh, the British Rangers, who are nominally there um, at that point, decide to break off the action. There's rumors of an invasion from Kentucky by George Rogers Clark and the Kentucky militia, and also he wants to get ready for that. Um, he, he, he goes back to Upper Sandusky. The Americans try to retreat, and uh, they're harassed the whole way, and stragglers are picked off, as stragglers often are. Um, and so what you get to is, is various groups, small groups, uh, getting lost. Uh, being separated and then being captured anytime there's an opportunity to capture them. And one of those small groups is William Crawford, uh, Dr. Jonathan Knight, and then um, four other men, I think, are with, with him originally. Uh, and those numbers, numbers get whittled down uh, as they try to move east. So, yeah, Crawford gets captured. Um, and yeah, so what, uh, uh, first of all, who can... Uh, I mean, do you have these different tribes are diff capturing different people and do they, yeah. they handle, do different tribes handle their prisoners different and uh, who captured Crawford and yeah, tell us, tell us his unfortunate fate. They do. Uh, different tribes do, do capture different groups of prisoners. They do handle their troops different or their captured uh, prisoners differently. Um. There was one group called the Ojibwe, uh, uh, which captured some prisoners, and they're very careful to avoid a lot of the, they're a, more of a lakes tribe, and they're pretty careful to avoid a lot of these Ohio nations' uh, campsites. And that told me that they're headed to Detroit. They want to deliver their prisoners into British hands because they're going to get paid. Um, so they're very careful, you know, they're not treating their prisoners all that well, but considering the alternatives, which we'll talk about next, um, not too bad. Um, Crawford gets captured probably by the Delaware. Um, they're among the slower groups, uh, slower little clusters of men retreating. Uh, he's definitely behind the main column at this point. Um, and he gets captured, I think, after two days on the road. Um, most of the Indians killed with Madden Hutton in March were Delaware. And uh, so the Delaware are, are outraged and it's, it's payback time as far as a lot of them are concerned. Uh, that's the thing about the frontier war. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just a constant back and forth of injustice after injustice after injustice after injustice. You know, nobody wants to talk about how it started. They just want to like, you know, who was the last person who got hurt or we hit them. So that's what's going on here. Okay. Huh? Like Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, where yep. 
constant reprisals and you know it gets to a, a point where it's like yeah well why are we doing this to each other and you know it's hard to answer that but all you know is you got to replay repay blood with blood so absolutely it's what's going on uh, for much of the, the last year of the war um so prisoners are getting picked up all over the place like i mentioned and, and they're different uh groups of indians operating uh, in small groups picking off the stragglers uh, crawford gets picked up along with knight and uh, i think two other men um two of the other guys escape and um so he's taken to a camp this is one of the camps run by wingenund uh it's kind of a, a uh, a collection point for prisoners. Uh, I think the, no, to, the number there at the highest moments around eight, nine. Um, uh, and Crawford and his party eventually are going to be making their way to Hopacan's town or, or Captain Pipe's town, which is just northwest of, uh, I believe it's just northwest of uh, Dunquat's town where the Wyandotte live. We don't know too much about what happened with Wyandotte prisoners. Uh, Dunquat's main, main mission here seems to be to defend his people, which is why he made the decision to face the Americans here. And now his main concern is to face uh, this invasion that they expect from Kentucky under Clark, uh, which doesn't happen, by the way, but they don't know that at the time, of course. So the Delaware are going to enact their vengeance. Um, and... Uh, uh, Crawford's group is, 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 is bound for it. They're moving as they're being brought back from the front, various members of various prisoners who've been assembled at Wing and Nuns camp uh, are just plain outright killed at various points. So, you know, two men would be taken off into the woods. Uh, and then lo and behold, a little bit later, you'd see their captors or their guards bringing back two scalps. Um, so this is going on all the way to they get to the towns. Um, John Slover, who's one of the scouts, also gets captured, uh, crosses paths with Crawford. Nobody's allowed to speak, but Slover tells his own stories of the men who he was with and how they were treated. And Slover tells the stories. Um, I think the relatively accurate observer here in this case, um, it was custom when a prisoner was brought in to make, be made to run the gauntlet. This is when the whole town would come out and they basically run, make uh, prisoners run between two lines of everybody in town. And then they would just beat you. And they'd beat you all the way until some safe point. And if you, in theory, put up with it or, you know, braved your way through it, you might be allowed to live, uh, but in some cases not. And they just beat you to death right there. Um, the, 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 the gauntlet in these cases is particularly brutal. Um, and I guess we'll get there when we talk about Crawford in, in particular. I think his is a pretty uh, representative, although his is the most, the most brutal uh, execution. Um, so this is going on all across um, the Ohio frontier, all, all along the Sandusky Basin during this time where prisoners are being killed left and right. Some of them are lucky. They picked up by a different tribes and mentioned and taken to Detroit or someplace else. Um, Crawford's tale is, is the one we have the most information about because Knight was with him the whole time and observed the whole thing up until almost the end where Crawford died. Um, it was customary to beat, beat prisoners, so they beat Crawford, Knight, and everybody else a couple times. Uh, as they would stop at different way stations or different small villages along their way. Um, basically, what they, they got to was they said, you know, you're our enemy, you're, you're responsible for all these things. It wasn't true. Uh, it, gets, it gets portrayed as a trial now, but it wasn't a trial when Crawford was finally faced with the Indians and, and called to account for his, his, his actions. Um, it gets portrayed now as a trial, was not a trial. He'd already been painted black there, you see. I'm sorry. You see in your background there that his face is painted black. And that was a mark of death. And that had been done uh, on a couple different occasions, days before uh, the events portrayed behind you actually happened. Um, so he was marked for death before his trial. And that had been the fate of every other prisoner that they had taken, uh, that the Delaware had taken. So they took him out, uh, stripped him naked, 
beat him pretty good. Uh, tie his hands behind him, uh, tied one foot to a cord, and the cord ran to a pole. So as he walked, he could walk around the pole, uh, as you can see there. And I should have used that picture sometime. And um, uh, of course, you walk one direction the whole time, the cord would pull you closer and closer and closer to the to the pole. And as you walk around the other direction, you can only go out so far, uh, like a fishing reel. And what they would do is they were taking these uh, bundles of sticks uh, out of burning fires. So the ends were all on fire and beating him with them as he tried to get around this pole to avoid them. Warriors would take their muskets, uh, whether rifles or smooth boards, whatever they had handy. They'd fill them uh, with black powder. And then they'd just walk right up to his body and unload the black powder. So there's no bullet. But we've all seen, you know, you fire a black powder weapon, there's flame coming out, there's unburned gunpowder, there's wadding, all kinds of stuff's coming out of the end of that, that, that firearm. Um, and it's doing severe damage to him. This goes on for hours. So that he's blackened, you know, he's bleeding everywhere. Uh, as they fired each time, you know, gunfire, uh, fire coming out unburned, would have ignited unburned powder deposited on his body. So he's periodically exploding into flame. Uh, they cut off one of his ears. Uh, he falls down, they cut off the other ear. He's bleeding from both sides of his head. Um, then the women show up and, and, and as, you, as, as was custom, they were leading the charge and beating him with these burning sticks. They start throwing hot coals on him. Over time, everywhere he could walk was covered in hot coals. So this is what it meant to be burned at the stake. Uh, they didn't tie it to the stake like you see in, in, in medieval movies and, and light a bunch of wood underneath you. Uh, this was a much slower process. Um, uh, he eventually falls down into uh, the ashes, uh, but somehow manages to get up again. Um, and at that point, Dr. Knight is sort of led away um, and he doesn't see the awful end of it. So they're not exactly, you know, but it clearly those are fatal wounds. Um, and Knight is told that we're gonna go do the same thing to you uh, in, in the Shawnee towns. So the Shawnee are gonna enact, get to enact their, their vengeance for uh, this sort of tit for tat kind of war. Uh, he does go out by the, the site the next day and he sees basically Crawford's bones. Uh, Slover recounts this kind of thing having happened or him or having seen evidence of this kind of thing happening in various places uh, that he's taken uh, during his captivity. And he was slated for the same fate or a very similar fate um, when he managed to escape because he knew what was going to happen. Uh, really? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's an awful, uh, awful uh, way to go for sure. Um, what, um, so, so uh, Knight was able to escape um, and get back or? Um, Knight's being taken to the Shawnee Towns by a name, man named Tutelo. Mm -hmm. um, and um, having seen it, he knows what's coming. Uh, his jaw is fractured, Knight's jaw is fractured from all the beatings, uh, so he can't speak too well. They stop in a place, um, and there's just gnats everywhere. So Knight offers to make a fire, and Tutelu, in one of the worst moment decisions of, of, of his life, undoubtedly, agrees. And so as, as Knight's making this fire, um, he gets together a bunch of sticks, uh, the biggest ones he can find, and he's, you know, to tell his attention slip, Knight whacks him over the head with it, um, and he falls into the fire. So at that point, Knight make, takes the opportunity to try and grab his gun, gets the gun. Uh, he's going to shoot at, at Tutelu, but his arms are burned, his hands are burned, and, and, and the Native American takes off. Knight was going to chase him, uh, but can't quite get to him. Uh, breaks the right breaks the rifle in the process of trying to shoot it. Um, scrambles to grab everything he can, and he takes off back east. But he's not a frontiersman. He's not a he's not a scout. Doesn't know where he's going, um, and just sort of meanders his way east. Uh, takes about three weeks to get home with a broken jaw. He's living on you know random berries that he can find, um, sleeping in logs. Um, so he's he's in bad shape. 
but he does manage to make it home. Uh, some hunters find him pretty much collapsed, dehydrated, famished, all that in the woods, and, and they take him into Fort Macintosh. So out of the, out of the, you know, 400 and however many guys who end up going on that campaign, how many, how many of them make it back home? Um, this is the problem. We don't know for sure. Um, they did, a, they did, there is a role, but it's a role. It's a partial role that exists at the beginning of the campaign. As people are getting, going back home, Obviously, the stragglers are getting picked off. Uh, some people decide they're they're in better shape going on their own. They can make faster time in the column. So they split off or they may be headed for Western Virginia or a different part of Pennsylvania uh, than Mingo Bottom. So they've tried to take more direct routes home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, and there's not a, a there's never really a roll call. OK, who survived mm-hmm. because it wasn't a militia operation. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Williamson, who survived, and uh, Rose, who, who probably wrote the most thorough treatment uh, for a first-hand participant, they estimate they lost 40 to 50 um, people. Um, so that's, you know, coming up on 9%, um, which is a significant number. Yeah. What was the... Uh, what's the reaction uh to this campaign and specifically crawford's uh execution is uh i mean you mentioned he was a business partner with washington before the war i mean uh you know is 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 there any sort of outcry or you know any sort of effort at retaliation as a result of this campaign well uh the political the guys who put this thing together uh local political leaders uh don't admit defeat. Uh, they, they're claiming, you know, uh, we faced 2,000 Indians, which is nonsense. They probably played, faced about 400, 350 the first day and, and maybe 500 by the second day. Um, so uh, we only, you know, we did quite well. We only, only had trouble because of our poor leadership. So they stick the whole thing on Crawford's head for poor leadership, mm-hmm. which is why they really want Irvine to lead another one. And their whole plan is we're going to lead another one. Uh, word reaches Irvine of Crawford's fate, uh, probably around July 4th, when he hears from Knight and then John Slover, and he reports that back to Washington. Um, and uh, Knight's account is he dictates it uh, to a printer, uh, a lawyer, from his bed in, in Fort Pitt as he's trying to recover. The guy's name, guy named H.H. Brackenridge, he rushes the thing into print. Brackenridge is a notorious Indian, Indian hater at this point. So he plays up the lurid details, clearly adds some things, and then rushes it into print. And it spreads far and wide across the frontier and even, even makes it to the East Coast. And for a good 80 years, it's in print, um, just continually reprinted as, as sort of an instance of, you know, what those Native Americans were like. So it becomes a Crawford's fate becomes a rallying cry for extermination. Um, Washington took the view that, okay, given what's going on there and, and what happened to Crawford, no man, in his phrase, I'm paraphrasing, no man should suffer himself to be taken prisoner. Meaning you're going to fight to, you know, save the last bullet for yourself uh, because this is now a war to the death. Um, the British, for their part, were all eager to be associated with the victory and claim credit for the victory. Uh, I argue in the book that the, the people who own the credit for the victory here, Dunquat and Hopakon, who made the major decisions, the British had the tradition of, well, it was our advisors and our officers who won the victory, which I think is nonsense. Um, then as soon as word of Crawford's fate starts to circulate among the British, they're like, oh, no, it was Indians. Um, totally, you know, nobody wants to be affiliated or associated with this thing anymore. Um, but the authorities in Detroit and the authorities uh, farther east in Quebec are, are, are worried that, oh, you know, heavens, heavens to us, we, we had stopped all this, you know, barbaric behavior from the Native Americans. We've worked so hard to stop it. And uh, because of Nat and Hutton, uh, clearly that's going to be impossible in the future. Uh, it's nonsense because Hamilton had, had, was notoriously known as a scout buyer, and, and his, you know, his correspondence is quite clear that he intended he's, rage, he's waging a war of terror. Um, so uh, 
if anything, Crawford's fate intensifies that race hatred uh, that you see, that, that, that sort of that cultural, uh, racial hatred that you see, I think, on both sides. And this, 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 this notion that we're going to have a war of no quarter uh, among people who live on the frontier. Uh, I, I would argue that a lot of the political authorities uh, uh, on both sides, both among Native Americans and, and British authorities and the uh, continental authorities, uh, have a different view and they don't want it to go that far uh, in terms of this war of extermination. Uh, they're still looking to find some way of, of having a peaceful settlement or some sort of accommodation. Uh, whether that's possible, you know, history will tell you that. We all can read the history for ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, that is some, uh, yeah, brutal fighting that, that happens out in that area. Um, at, you know, at a time when, you know, even the uh, the other fighting is, is, is also brutal, uh, but this is, uh, yeah, pretty uh, exceptional in its uh, brutality, uh, for sure. Um, today, uh, the site of the battle, the site of Crawford's execution, is there anything still there? Is there any markers or anything that kind of, uh, if somebody wanted to go, is, there any, is it interpreted on the ground anywhere? Uh, it's not generally interpreted. Um, there are markers. Uh, they're not interpretive markers. Uh, they're they're uh, uh, sort of brick and a plaque monuments that have been set up um, over the last 150 years. Um, I went out uh, with my brother. We met with a local historian named Tom Hill, um, who's who's probably spent more time than anybody um, studying this battle. He grew up in the area, worked in the area, um, and um, knows the area. Battle Island's location for sure isn't known because they haven't had a chance to do uh, any archeological work. Mm -hmm. um, so what you get is, is uh, uh, you know, when white surveyors showed up um, after, you know, the wars of the Northwest Territories were, were more or less settled, um, you know, they were interested in laying out, they weren't interested in historical surveys, they were interested in laying out farm plots. Um, so they weren't looking to establish locations too well. There were some elderly Indians still living in the area, uh, and some missionaries had been out there since the 1820s. And, and so you could sort of, somebody claimed to be there, you could go out and, you know, he could show you where this, that, and the other thing happened, or at least tell you that's where it happened, whether or not he witnessed it or not. It's another question. Um, Tom had identified what, what I think conventional wisdom or common knowledge out there is, is Battle Island. It's all, everything is mostly privately held. It's all working farmland. Mm. Um, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and farmers being as industrious as they are for the last 200 years, swamps are drained, bogs are drained, hills are leveled, roads are improved. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's still open. It's still got that open field feeling to it uh, so you get that sense and the most likely location for battle island does have a, a line of trees on it uh, i think as a, a both, both for <laughs> field and border demarcation and as a windbreak um, so you can sort of picture it in your head when you go see it uh, there are monuments scattered all over the place um, they tend to be on rights of way uh, because many of these areas are privately held um, the the, uh, there are two markers for Carter, for uh, Crawford's burn site. Uh, one of them, which is probably more accurate, is on privately held land. So uh, the, the, folk in, the, the folks in the area put another one not too far away in a cemetery, so it's accessible. Mm. Uh, there's a 19th century marker for the Battle of Olentangy, which is probably a mile and a quarter away from the battlefield. Um, so uh, without uh, Tom's expert knowledge and guidance, we've been completely lost trying to find anything because um, it all, you know, is that a hill? I'm not sure that's a hill. It's kind of a hill, but you wouldn't break a sweat walking up it. Um, so there's no little round top. There's no big round top. There's no cemetery ridge. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, <laughs> 
it's it's your guess is as good as mine, but Tom's guess was pretty good. So I took his word for it and I think he knows his stuff. Huh. Well, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and no, I, I think this is uh it's great that um you're you com- were able to compile this information and uh looking forward to getting a copy of the book. Uh when did you say uh, this book this book's coming out this June, correct? I think yep, early June if all goes well. All right. And uh, how can people, uh, you can people pre-order this book uh, at this point or I, you know, you can pre-order it. It's listed on Amazon. Uh, I I suspect I haven't looked, but you could probably do the same thing at Barnes and Noble. West home has a great deal. If you join their book club, they give you 25% off. um, And and, uh, you can pre-order it there. Uh, They fulfill their orders through university of Illinois. Um, so, uh, I'm all in favor of anywhere and everywhere you can pre-order it, get your copy today, <laughs> order it today and wait a few months. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think that that's, uh, like I said, I mean, when we're talking about overlooked aspects of the revolution, this is, uh, this is for sure one, but, uh, what a, what a dramatic story. Um, and, uh, I mean, it just sounds like, a, I mean, it's a fascinating story, a tragic one, a brutal one, but it's still just, uh, pretty fascinating to for, for people to have uh, lived through those times and experienced this kind of uh, frontier warfare um, it must have been a pretty uh, harrowing affair uh, for everybody involved for sure so yeah um, but yeah no thank you Eric uh, for for joining us tonight uh, thank you for sharing all this knowledge about uh, a little known part of the Revolutionary War um, so the, the book again is uh, the Battle of Upper Sandusky uh, by Eric Sterner. Get your copy, get your pre-order in today. Thank you, Eric, for joining. Thank you.